almost two years into the pandemic, we know so much more. We know that we don't have to have the same fear that gripped us, but we need to have knowledge. Welcome to the Your Longevity Blueprint Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Stephanie Gray. My number one goal with the show is to help you discover your personalized plan to build your dream health and live a longer, happier, truly healthier life. You're about to hear from Dr. Elisa Song. Today, we're going to discuss immune resilience in children, mental health resilience in kids, and preparing for the winter, ultimately what you can do to keep your family healthy. Let's get started. Welcome to another episode of the Your Longevity Blueprint Podcast. Today, my guest is Dr. Elisa Song, who's an integrative pediatrician, pediatric functional medicine expert, and mama. In her integrative pediatric practice, Whole Family Wellness, she's helped thousands of kids get to the root cause of their health concerns and help their parents understand how to help their children thrive, body, mind, and spirit, by integrating conventional pediatrics with functional medicine, homeopathy, acupuncture, herbal medicine, and essential oils. Dr. Song created Healthy Kids, Happy Kids as an online holistic pediatric resource to help practitioners and parents bridge the gap between conventional and integrated pediatrics with an evidence-based pediatrician-backed approach. Welcome to the show, Dr. Song. Thank you, Stephanie. It's an honor to be here today. Well, tell us your story. So first, what led you into becoming integrative with your approach to children's health in general? That goes way back because I grew up in a very conventional household. My mom was an OBGYN and, um, you know, we grew up with medicines and everything very, very conventional. Although, you know, being Korean, Koreans do tend to gravitate towards more kind of herbal, natural, yeah. you know, therapy. So it was interesting. I, I grew up with my grandmother at home. So she was like my, my second mom. So when I went to college, first of all, I had no, no intention of becoming a doctor. <laughs> I actually, I wanted to do policy and be a lawyer and advocate for children in Washington, D.C. And I spent a couple of summers with the Children's Defense Fund lobbying for, you know, children's health rights and poverty, uh, fighting poverty. So children were always my heart. But then, you know, I remember thinking as a junior taking the LSATs and thinking about law school and thinking, oh my gosh, well, if I'm a lawyer, I mean, I can do hopefully some good for kids, but I'm not going to work with children. So then I kind of switched gears and senior year was when I took all of my pre-med courses and it was senior year at Stanford that I saw this sign. Now I'm going to date myself. This was back in the, you know, late (laughs) eighties, you know, where I saw this sign, you know, for this conference for the American Holistic Medical Association. I'm like, what is that? You know? So, so I just, I went, you know, whatever, whatever got into me as a junior to drive to the Santa Clara Convention Center. And, and it was so amazing. I mean, I heard from these people that were just barely getting started. Andrew Weil, <laughs> you know, Deepak Chopra, Joan Borisenko, and literally like my mind was was blown. And I thought, oh, I'm going to be a naturopathic doctor. And so I remember calling my mom and saying, hey, you know, I want to, I want to, I'm looking at Best Year. And, and she's like, what is that? And everyone <laughs> I spoke with was like, what is that? <laughs> so of course I wasn't necessarily encouraged to go that route. Yeah. And I ended up going to medical school. And I, I'm actually really glad that I went this way because I, that's why I'm really consider myself more of an integrated pediatrician, you know, because throughout my career, even in medical school, I wasn't satisfied with what I was learning. I wanted to go to this holistic medicine, student medical, medical students um, elective in Virginia with Pally DeLevitt. And of course my advisors in med school, NYU, very traditional. were like, nope, sorry. That's, you know, we can't accept that. I'm like, what? (laughs) 
so then, you know, and at UCSF, I did, a, um, I created my own elective in uh, integrative medicine during my rheumatology immunology. I said, hey, can I actually create my elective? And, and I wrote a primer, did research and, and went to different chiropractors and acupuncture offices and learned about an integrative approach to juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. So it's always been in my heart. When I finished my residency, I just thought, what can I do? You know, I, I'm not happy with whatever I'm seeing. It's just, we're all, it's like Band-Aid medicine and we're great at trauma. We're great at, you know, acute infections. We're great yeah. at, you know, but all of these chronic conditions were, were just skyrocketing. And I thought, well, I, I think I want to do something more integrative. So that's yeah. when I went back and did additional training. And I started off in medicine in, in clinical practice as an integrative pediatrician. Um, Very cool. So yeah. yeah, that's always been my passion and the only way I would practice. We don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? There's a time and a place for everything, but we know now that what we're doing in conventional medicine, I mean, antibiotics can be life-saving, but we need to understand the unintended consequences on the developing child's gut microbiome and the effects on their brain and their immune system and their hormones. So it really takes that holistic integrative approach. I love it. I love it. That's how I practice only for adults, <laughs> not, not children. Yet. <laughs> so many parents have called you the voice of reason that's helped them navigate this pandemic with a calm confidence using facts over fear. So tell us about your journey to becoming the go-to integrative pediatric expert for the pandemic. I know there's a story there, so please share. <laughs> well, it was never my intention, right? I mean, the life happens thrown at you <laughs> for a reason. And so um, if we kind of step back way back, I mean, not that long ago, but, you know, just remember where we were back in January of 2020, right? February of 2020, when we're just hearing about, you know, this thing, this virus, and it was taking over the world and the fear. I mean, there was so much fear. I remember, you know, at the end of in February, just talking to my husband, should I go to this conference, the A4M conference where I was supposed to talk at the end of February? Like, should I stay home? Should I wear a mask? What should I do? And, yeah. you know, it was just this whole thing. And I remember, you know, at that point, you know, we're like, well, okay, I'm, I was seeing these children with these influenza-like illnesses that were flu negative, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. remember back then, we had no way to test for COVID. I was on the wait list for Quest to get my hands on those precious swabs to be able to do COVID testing. And then even if you did COVID testing, it was taking like a week to get back. So right, we, right. we were just in this wild west of fear. And so when I have fear in me, I, you know, I just, I need to find the facts, right? So I just dug into what we knew about you know, what was being called, um, we weren't even calling it SARS-CoV-2 back then. It wasn't, well, we were calling it SARS-CoV-2, but it wasn't COVID just yet. And I just looked at all the research on SARS-CoV-1 and, and really looked at it from a functional medicine integrated perspective. And I wrote an article. If you guys know me, like, you know, my articles are really in-depth. I go into the science and, you know, I wrote this article with like, I don't know, like 82 citations. I'm like, okay, we just need to approach this with a little bit more, more knowledge. And that was on, I think it was February 22nd. And wow. it was the first article, right, of this of 2020, a first article on really looking at a comprehensive approach to SARS-CoV-2. And it literally, I mean, no pun intended, I mean, it went viral within hours, shared everywhere across the world. And it's had, I think, now over probably over about 1.5 million views. I mean, it was just wow. crazy. And um we need to post a link to that in the show notes. So I gotta make a note. Yeah. <laughs> if we can, um, if it's available or is it's it on your still website? available. It's okay. still up. Um, yeah. 
And, uh, and I spoke about, you know, things like glutathione and vitamin D and what can we do to try to arm ourselves, you know, with this unknown thing. So that was the end of February. And then we went into lockdown March 13th. I mean, that's when our schools got the notice. Okay. We're, we'll, we'll take a two week break over spring break and then come back. And of course, nobody went back, right? But just before the lockdown, I saw two kids who had this very strange flu-like illness. In fact, one boy was subsequently hospitalized at UCSF for this Kawasaki-like illness. And in retrospect, I think that was obviously COVID back then, but we didn't know, we couldn't test. And so shortly after going into lockdown, my kids got COVID, right? My daughter, she had the classic signs. She was 11 at the time, actually 10 at the time. And she had these, the classic, the cough, the fever, the shortness of breath. Of course, you know, as a pediatrician, I had a pulse oximeter and she would drop down. Ideal, ideal, normal pulse oximeter is um, oxygen saturation is over 97%. And she would get to like 93, 94, 95%. She never looked like she was short of breath. She always said, I feel fine, right? But I had no swabs back then to test. So it wasn't until her seventh day of illness that I finally got my box of Quest swabs and I tested her. Sure enough, I was like, oh my God, she has COVID, right? We weren't quarantining. I mean, how could you? Your child's sick, right? Mm -hmm. And then about a week after she got sick, my son got sick and he didn't have any of the classic symptoms. His first symptom was severe abdominal pain, severe mm-hmm. headache. And back then that was not considered a COVID symptom, right? It was right. fever, cough, shortness of breath. And then he started having hallucinations, hearing mm-hmm. mean voices, seeing really scary things. He got a rash. I mean, all the signs of, mm-hmm. that we would now think of as, as heading towards multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, MISC. His oxygen levels start to drop, drop, drop. I even got a home oxygen tank for him, which I would wow. never, ever recommend that you do as a mom, right? But uh, but when his oxygen levels dropped to 88%, I mean, that's when I was like, I can't do this at home. Yeah. And, you know, just, just the fear was so incredible. So I brought him to UCSF. And then at that point, after I kind of shook myself, right, you kind of have to give yourself a little like, like shake or a slap mm-hmm. in the face. I'm like, okay, get a hold of yourself what did you just research? What do you need to do for your son? Right. And so that's when I, I had already been giving him vitamin C and glutathione and doing everything that, you know, that um, I thought we could, but then I added some other things for my integrated medicine toolkit, melatonin, serum derived bovine immunoglobulin, mm-hmm. specialized pro-resolving mediators. And we were in the hospital and literally as soon as I started those, his oxygen levels started to climb his hallucinations went away. His, you know, he, he was more present. Like he just had this really goofy, weird look with these ticks, these eye rolling ticks he was doing. It scared the bejesus out of me, right? Like he just wasn't my kid right then and there. And we know that COVID now can trigger these neuropsychiatric symptoms, almost like a PANS, a pediatric acute onset neuropsychiatric syndrome in children. My conjecture is that he probably got COVID around the same time as Kenzie, but probably since he was only eight at the time, and we know that 50% of kids will have asymptomatic infection. I'm going to guess he had an asymptomatic infection then. And that was why, you know, two weeks later, he developed this MISC type presentation, which we know is a post-COVID presentation. Everyone's like, well, why did you get COVID? What about your husband? And we didn't unravel the mystery until several months later when antibodies were available. And I checked all of us and sure enough, my husband and I had antibodies. And in retrospect, 
the weekend when we went into lockdown about a, you know five days before my daughter started to get sick, I had this intense four-day headache and I'm not a headache person, right? A- enough that I slept all day one day and my husband's like, are you okay? You know, so that must've been, and my husband had GI distress, right? For about a day, a little bit of a headache, you know, a little, nothing major, right? But, but we obviously have very mild symptoms that must've been COVID that then, you know, again, not quarantining, I must've passed it on to my kids, which as you know, Stephanie, I mean, just the PTSD of that, you know, has, has really been huge for me. But since then, you know, because I never ever want another parent to have to go through that fear again. I mean, literally when we went to UCSF, you know, and, and I was walking in with my son and saying goodbye to my daughter and husband, I mean, remember back in, in March, right, 2020, we had no idea of how kids were doing. The assumption then was that kids were doing going to do worse with COVID, just like they do with flu compared to adults. And I mean, I literally, like, I don't even want to speak these words, but I didn't know like who was going to yeah. come out at the end of this day, right? Oh. I mean, it just, like, it was <sighs> that fear. And so somehow that kind of you know, thrust me into trying to bring more knowledge to parents. And here I am, you know, <laughs> like over almost, you know, two years later, and I'm still doing this work trying to really educate parents and empower parents because now almost two years into the pandemic, we know so much more. We know that we don't have to have the same fear that gripped us, but we need to have knowledge. So good. Uh, tell us about your son though. So, so what happened? Did he quickly or slowly improve or <laughs> quickly, quickly. And by quickly, I mean, we went into the hospital. It was, you know, probably 10 o'clock at night. You know, uh, I don't remember what day that was. I think it was maybe a, a Saturday. No, I take that back. It was a Thursday night. I started him on, on melatonin that night, you know, and his oxygen levels again, quickly, like rapidly, he would, he started to climb, climb, climb back up. His eyes came back. Um, you know, his ticks went away, his hallucin- hallucinations went away and we were ready to go home the next day except that, you know, they wanted to watch us a little bit more closely because honestly, the hospital, I mean, UCSF, the nurses and the staff were so amazing, but they didn't know what to do. And and I was like, what about, you know, back then, you know, there were um, some different medications that were being tried. um, And they're like, well, we don't have any experience with kids. So we're just not recommending that. So he got IV fluids and oxygen, Mm -hmm. right? But Mm -hmm. no medications, no treatment. They tried an albuterol inhaler for him. It didn't make a difference. You know, he quickly turned around. And, and I, can I say it was because of, you know, what I did? I can't for sure, but that was the only thing different because I was giving him oxygen at home too, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we, we were actually stayed two nights in the hospital, just resting and, and by, you know, by the next day, I mean, he was back and he, he thought it was a blast because UCSF, the children's hospital, Benioff Children's Hospital is gorgeous. And he's like, I don't want to go. I have this, I have this huge TV, right? I can play video games on my TV. I can order room, room service on the TV. And I was like, buddy, we have to go. Right. So Saturday, my husband and Kenzie picked us up and he, I mean, that afternoon he was, you know, running around Kenzie in the yard. I'm like, slow down, take it easy. Right. But he was running around. They were jumping on the trampoline and Sunday was Easter. And he, we, I mean, we did an Easter egg hunt 
in our yard. I mean, it was like nothing had happened. And wow. knock on wood, thankfully, thankfully, I mean, I actually took him to the cardiologist a few months later just to check his heart. Yes, nothing, yes. no residual awesome. problems at all. So, and, and to this day, he's doing 100%. I mean, he's still, and now he's back to his, his normal goofy self as opposed to the kind of scary goofy mm-hmm. that he was in the hospital. So, I mean, he just, he bounced back. And, and that's where, you know, I really want parents to, to know. I mean, it's, it's really, I mean, that was kind of the next question that, that we'll, we were going to go into is really, what do we know now about immune resilience, right? Yes. You know, when we think about immune resilience, what I tell parents over and over again, it's not about never getting sick. I mean, we've lived in a bubble for the past two years with our kids. And, you know, so many parents tell me, it's amazing. My kids didn't get to get all this past year and a half or two years. And I don't know that that's necessarily a good thing because our immune systems have kind of lost their training. We have mm-hmm. to get back on our training wheels. And, you know, immune resilience, it's not about never getting sick. It's about your immune system and your body learning how to overcome each and every single hit so that it can be stronger for the next hit. And by hit, it's not even just infections, right? It's environmental toxins. Mm-hmm. It's emotional stress, psychological stress is as inflammatory to our immune system as any infection or toxin. And in fact, when Bodhi was in the hospital, you know, the power of mind-body medicine, it really has to be up there, way up there. In fact, higher up than I think any medication that we're using, any supplement we're using, you know, really, you know, we do need to think about food as medicine, but food as medicine and mind-body medicine, I think are the two most important pieces for immune and cellular resilience. So, and I know that firsthand when Bodhi was in the hospital and his oxygen levels would start to drop and he started to look a little short of breath. Of course, my mommy brain would kick in and I start to be like, Bodhi, are you okay? And start to kind of panic. And, and he would start to breathe faster and his oxygen levels would start to drop more. And he even said at one point, he's like, mommy, stop, you're scaring me. <laughs> so I'd have to kind of, I, I mustered all my strength and I would calm down. I would have Bodhi kind of sit up and I'd say, okay, Bodhi, let's, let's just slow it down. Let's do our square breathing. That's a breathing technique where you just imagine a box, it's box breathing. And we have this app called Stop Breathe. Think where a fish goes up and around the box. As a fish goes up, you take a slow breath in, hold it across the top. And then as a fish goes in, you exhale and hold it across the bottom. So we do our square breathing. And then we would just say our healing mantras. We'd stand up and shout. We had a private room in the corner and we just shout out as loud as we could. You know, my body is strong. My lungs are strong. I'm getting stronger and stronger. And immediately, you know, he'd go from like 88, 89% to like, 95, 96%. I mean, within, within right like yeah. minutes, right? That's and awesome. so we cannot discount the power of using, harnessing, you know, our mind to get that mind immune system connection, mind gut connection working properly. Love it, love it, love it. So you teach parents and practitioners about these foundations of immune resilience. So let's break down those three things you mentioned, that food is medicine, the supplements, and then what we can do to support emotional health. So let's talk about food. So tell us about your food as medicine approach. So you can't out supplement 
a bad diet and lifestyle, right? We know that, right? Whenever, you know, people talk about, you know, building immune resilience, you know, supporting their child's immune system, the first question is, well, what supplements can I give them? (laughs) Which supplements have a role. I'm not saying they don't. And I give supplements to my kids and I recommend supplements, but you have to start with a foundation. Now, I totally get 100% that some kids are really, they're, they're picky or they're not quite eating, you know, five to nine servings of vegetables in a day. And right now, as we head into the holidays, you know, from Halloween to Christmas, it's a sugar fest, right? I mean, it's like, we can't escape some of that. And so we need to support ourselves with supplements, but really we want to get down to the foundations of food as medicine and prioritize that. I'll just take a moment with a word on sugar. And I'm not going to say, I don't give my kids any sugar. I mean, Halloween just happened and, you know, they're having one thing of candy from their, their Halloween. I really, you know, I would say if you can please avoid any artificial colors and flavors, Um, but the sugar, let's talk about the sugar, sugar in any form, whether it's glucose or fructose. And I'm going to say even, you know, a ton of fruit sugar, the studies have found, this is an old study back in the seventies, but found that sugar within 20 minutes of consumption reduces your white blood cells ability to basically these macrophages that are part of our white blood cells to engulf, to eat, to trap infections and fight infections by 50%. And that effect can last for, you know, at least five hours or longer. Now, pre-pandemic in the days of, you know, bouncy house parties where, (laughs) or like, you know, you're, you're, you're pumping up parties where there'd be cake and Skittles and lots of candy and everyone's touching and, you know, Bad I mean, combination. You back, you're, like, yeah. you're like, oh boy. You know? But it's no wonder that the next day, you know, so many kids, they wake up with a runny nose or their throat sore, right? Yep. So we just want to remember that and know that, you know, if your, your kids are having a treat, you know, are having a sugar load and, you know, our family, we've been going through a very stressful time right now with some medical, you know, issues with um, elderly, you know, aging grandparents. And so it's been stressful. And there's a reason why when we're stressed, our, our brain wants sugar because it is, it gives you that kind of feel good hormone release, but we want to take that and just know, okay, when we're stressed already, our immune system is a little down, don't load it up with sugar. But if you're going to have some sugar, balance it out, right? Balance it out with antioxidants and, you know, greens and, um, you know, enough sleep, right? Sleep is healing. Sleep is so important. Um, You know, getting your body moving, get some exercise in. So just balance. It's all about balance, right? And then when we think about food as medicine, what also get you, Stephanie, for for the listeners is I have a, a little guide, a little shopping list, you know, called food as medicine for coronavirus. But I really need to change that to food as medicine, you know, for immune support because it's really the foundations of, of all immune health. But I list the top nutrients, the vitamins or the minerals that are really so foundational for your immune health on one hand. And then on the other side, I list all the top foods with those um, nutrients in it. And what what a lot of parents have done, which I think is awesome, is to print it out, put it in the fridge. And then as they go through and make up their weekly shopping list, have your kids involved, have your kids pick out a food from each of those categories. And even if they're not eating it quite yet, you can say, okay, for the glutathione, we're going to work on cabbage this week, you know, and try to find some different creative ways to eat cabbage, right? So if your kids can help with that, it gets them more invested and more interested in at least trying some of these foods, you know, the top foods. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you what's on the list. There's zinc, there's quercetin, there's vitamin C, mm-hmm. there's vitamin D, there's glutathione, um, vitamin A and probiotics and omega-3s. Now that sounds like, oh my gosh, 
that's a lot, right? <laughs> but a lot of foods, I mean, you do double duty, right? Because your, your cruciferous vegetables, um, like broccoli, kale, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, cauliflower, those can do double duty with vitamin C and with glutathione, uh, mm-hmm. you know, glutathione enhancing foods. Some of them are going to be rich in, in quercetin. So you, it's not like you have to choose a ton, right? Your zinc foods or your zinc rich foods. If you choose seafood, that's also going to be a rich source of omega threes. So they, a lot of them do double duty, right? But each of these, you know, has a role in supporting different aspects of our immune system. When it comes to COVID in particular, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, we have a lot more data from SARS-CoV-1, but we know that, for instance, zinc, which a lot of people have heard of zinc and quercetin by now, you know, as, as we're kind of mm-hmm. now two years into the pandemic. And why are those such super nutrient powerhouses? Because zinc, at least for SARS-CoV-1, the first SARS virus, was found to inhibit replication, multiplication of the virus inside the cells. And quercetin, which is found in red apples, you know, um, red onions, um, in grapes and spinach, cruciferous vegetables, quercetin is what we call a zinc ionophore, which, I mean, could you imagine into the pandemic how much more language, medical language we have, right? You know, not just as lay people, but even as practitioners, right? Do you think most medical professionals have ever heard of a zinc ionophore before the mm, pandemic? Probably not, not, right? Yeah. But now it's like, it kind of rolls off the tongue for a lot of people, but a zinc ionophore helps to drive zinc into the cells so that your cells can use it more, right? So that's that's why, you know, some of those. Now, vitamin D, if you're going to prioritize any supplement, it hands down is vitamin D. So important that I even wrote an article, why all kids need vitamin D, right? It's, it's the most important supplement through the winter. Very often, now, if you look at the food sources of vitamin D, um, they're not the most kid-friendly, right? There's mushrooms, caviar. <laughs> yeah, fish. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, right. Now, um, dairy, cow's dairy has vitamin D, but you know, a lot of my kids that I see are sensitive or allergic to cow's milk products. And, you know, from a Chinese medicine perspective, cow's milk creates a lot of a damp and phlegm and mucus. Mm-hmm. And so you really don't want that in the wintertime either, or when we're sick. So vitamin D for vitamin D, you often need supplementation, even in the summer when there's enough sunlight to get conversion through your skin. I mean, we live in an inflammatory world. Let's just put it that way. We have a lot of forces on our immune systems and our brains that really make us use so much vitamin D every day that even, even in the middle of the summer, I have to find when I measure 25 hydroxy vitamin D levels, almost all kids need a little extra vitamin D. Yep. Um, but that would be like the one supplement that I'd say if you're going to focus on. And then, you know, if your kids are not yet the most varied eaters, and let's face it, you know, even the healthiest of eaters could up-level their, their healthy eating game a little bit, right? You know, supplements can be a way to just have a little bit more of that security under you. Well, let's let's go through those, but can we go back to vitamin D for a minute? Because I'm sure a lot of parents are thinking, okay, how do I dose that? In, a, in the adult population that I see, I check their level and then I dose them based on how low they are. So in kids, especially if they have not had levels tested, uh, let's start with even infants. Like how much should we be giving them? How much vitamin D? I mean, there's a very different answer in the very conventional world and the more integrative functional medicine world. And, and you know, I'll just have listeners understand, and your listeners know this, that there's a huge difference between what one would consider normal and what one would consider optimal. 
Um, and when you look at the vitamin D ranges, the 25-hydroxy vitamin D ranges at, let's say, a, a conventional lab like Quest, the normal value will be anywhere from 20 to 100 nanograms per milliliter. That's a huge range. So when I have you know, a mom come in and they, they'll say, oh yeah, I had my vitamin D levels checked and I was told it was normal, right? This is, especially for a pregnant mom, right? Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. I, vitamin D during pregnancy to optimize it's so important for your baby's developing immune system and brain. And I want to know the exact number because if she's at a 22, that's not okay, right? That might be normal, but it's not optimal. So I like to get kids to an optimal range of about 60 to 80 nanograms per milliliter, which I think is that that's the same for adults too, right? It's mm -hmm. really not that mm -hmm. different, but the dosing, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that all breastfed infants get supplemented with 400 international units, 400 IUs of vitamin D3 daily. Now, why is that just for breastfed babies? Why not formula fed babies? Shouldn't breast milk be the perfect baby food, right? I mean, that's just evolutionarily, that's what we were born with. Really and truly the reason is because most moms are deficient or insufficient in vitamin D. So when measuring babies, if moms don't have enough vitamin D in their system to have that pass through the breast milk, then yes, babies are going to be more likely to be uh, uh, deficient or insufficient. That's why when you're pregnant or nursing, it's so important to optimize your own vitamin D level so that baby gets enough. And then there probably isn't going to be a need to supplement if you are at adequate levels. Now, that being said, you know, that's a recommendation of 400 IUs for a baby. And then, mm -hmm. then it's just, it's, there's not really clear guidelines on whether or not from the American Academy of Pediatrics, whether or not older kids need supplementation, but they don't recommend more than about a thousand IUs per day for any, you know, any age. Now I will say knowing that most kids are, are deficient or insufficient, that's typically not enough. <laughs> the vitamin D council had, had guidelines, the maintenance dose, once you reach an optimal level for vitamin D is about a thousand international units per 25 pounds of body weight up to a hundred pounds. So up to 5,000 IU. So once you get to 5,000 IUs per day, you kind of maintain it that. Now that's a maintenance dose. So for you gotta most, get there. You got to yes, get, you gotta there, get first. there first. So that's where I am measuring levels and, you know, get some kids, they might need, you know, 10,000 IUs a day for a month. And then we repeat and see if they're adequate and they might not still be adequate, right? And so if you can, it's best to test because I cannot look at a child and say, no, oh, yeah. their vitamin D levels are low, right? I might suspect that. I can suspect it if your child gets frequent infections or they have asthma or autoimmune conditions or any neurologic or psychiatric conditions. I, I presume then, you know, that your child mm -hmm. probably has suboptimal vitamin D levels, but I, I won't know until I test. So sure. if you can test and do, do that. As we enter flu season, I'm super excited to share that we are finally launching a comprehensive immune support product. It's called Immune Support, and it's a targeted blend of nutrients designed to provide a broad spectrum support to the body's immune reserves to keep you healthy and functioning at your best, despite the increased risk of seasonal illness during this time. The formulation includes quercetin, a powerful bioflavonoid that aids in supporting the immune system. Next, it includes vitamin C and N-acetylcysteine as potent antioxidants to promote respiratory function and support the function of quercetin. And lastly, it has vitamin D3 and zinc, which are important micronutrients needed to create a robust immune reserve. This blend includes all of the above, 600 milligrams of vitamin C, 2,500 IUs of D3, 25 milligrams of achelated zinc, 600 milligrams of N-acetylcysteine, and 250 milligrams of quercetin are in two capsules. 
and this product was formulated with those dosages in mind to be safe for those that are pregnant or lactating. If you want more, however, you can easily double the dose of the product, and it can also be combined with your daily complete multivitamin or my favorite product, mitochondrial complex. Research has shown that those taking this blend of nutrients fare much better with illnesses like viruses, making this the perfect time of year to stock up on immune support. In addition to being a fantastic option for anybody looking to boost immune reserves and support a healthy immune response, a bottle of immune support would fit perfect in your loved one's holiday stocking. Use code immune support for 10% off at yourlongevityblueprint.com. Now back to the show. Then, yeah, then let your provider guide you on what dosing you need, yes, and then continue with the maintenance. Let's go on to some other supplements. You alluded to giving your son some, I think you said, serum-derived immunoglobulins. So can you Mm. talk to the listeners about the role that they play, why they're important? We were just talking about breast milk, so there's a little bit of overlap there. (laughs) Breast milk also contains immunoglobulins, so... So one of the things that we've learned that many people have learned, you know, through COVID-19, I mean, this is something that that we should understand in general from that functional medicine perspective. And this is really a a life lesson, right? There's really very few things that are 100% good or bad in life, right? I mean, think about it. I mean, like very, very (laughs) few things, right? And the word inflammation, when you say inflammation, what do most people go to? Oh my God, that's bad. We can't have inflammation. We got to squash it, right? And when it comes to cytokine storm or you know sepsis, when inflammation goes out of control, yes, we, that is not a good thing. We want to lower that. However, we have to remember that when you are sick, initially inflammation is a good thing. Your it's your body's natural response. Those cytokines when you mount a fever, right? Mm-hmm. When you when you cut yourself and you get that redness around, that's all of your white blood cells going there and saying and creating pus. I'm trying to heal myself. Those are those white blood cells doing their thing. It's when things don't then, you know, re- reach resolution, right? You've managed the infection. You've managed the 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 cut, right? The pus. Your immune system has to say, "Okay, inflammation, you've done your job. Let's bring it back down and resolve it back to a normal state. When that resolution doesn't occur appropriately, that's when you get the cut that just oozes and oozes and oozes, right? Or you get the infection that then goes on into that second week of COVID, right? After the honeymoon period where you're getting better, might tip over into pneumonia, cytokine storm, sepsis. Right. So there's a time and a place for everything. We do not want to suppress inflammation when our body's trying to do its job. But when it's done its job, we want to support it in resolving that inflammation. And that's where the key role of immune modulators come in. Now, we know with SARS CoV 2, there are a lot of different inflammatory pathways that are triggered. One of the more important ones is the NLRP3 inflammasome. Immunologists love their acronyms and their initials, right? So the NLRP3 inflammasome that gets triggered when you have an infection, and then we want that to settle down. Now, when things start to go a little bit off kilter, we start seeing signs that the NLRP3 inflammasome is now inappropriately activated. There are things that we know from a functional medicine standpoint that can bring that down, but not suppress right? We don't want to just squash inflammation because then, you know, that's, that's not helping you to get to a normal, healthy state, to get back to the homeostasis. 
So melatonin does, right? Melatonin is, is amazing at that. Uh, melatonin is not just our sleep hormone, but it is an immune regulator. It also protects the brain, which is why it's used in Alzheimer's and with cancer patients. There's also our specialized pro-resolving mediators or SPMs. And you know, my followers and my, my patients know that is probably hands down, apart from vitamin D, my favorite ever supplement. <laughs> they are molecules derived from the EPA and the DPA of your omega-3 essential fatty acids, your fish oils. But you really can't get enough therapeutically by drinking tons of fish oil. So now, now there are a variety of supplement manufacturers that have purified out these SPMs. They have been game changers for my patients with autoimmune illnesses because what happens in autoimmunity is, again, it's that dysregulated immune response. So with COVID as well. I can never say it's a treatment, right? We don't want to get in trouble with the FDA by calling anything a treatment, but it can help the symptoms of a hyper-inflammatory, um, a dysregulated immune response. Amazing, right? I've used, used SPMs to support a healthy immune response to not just COVID, but to infections, to kids with PANS and PANDAS, um, you know, support healthy immune responses to, you know, even things like vaccinations. And then there's our SBI, which is a, an even less well-known supplement. It's the serum-derived bovine immunoglobulin. What this is, it, it, it's bovine by meaning cow. So it's cow antibodies, but it's not meant to boost your antibody systems. What, what SBIs do is they act on the gut. And we know that for, for people who present with the gut symptoms, like with Bodhi did, there's some mm -hmm. evidence that that actually portends, predicts possibly a more serious COVID infection. Because we know, you know, with, for instance, with MISC, what they found, the multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, that, that there is evidence that they have elevated levels of zonulin, a protein called zonulin in their blood than, than kids with COVID who didn't go on to develop MISC. And zonulin is a marker for leaky gut. And so we know from a leaky gut in sepsis, there are endotoxins that are secreted by gram-negative bacteria that can get absorbed and create something called metabolic endotoxemia. These endotoxins are called LPS, lipopolysaccharides. This LPS, when it's been absorbed, has been implicated not just in sepsis, but in autoimmune illnesses like Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, neuropsychiatric illnesses like schizophrenia, anxiety, depression, and a whole host of autoimmune diseases. What SBI does is it absorbs these endotoxins, this lipopolysaccharide, right? These LPS before it can get absorbed into the bloodstream. It's been amazing for some of my patients with like social anxieties or, you know, with autoimmune illnesses. With COVID, I think it's an important piece of the puzzle, especially if you have GI symptoms. Now in Spain, they're actually doing, it's a study called PICNIC, and I cannot remember what that acronym stands for, um, but they're actually using, it's a trial using SBIs in the hospital, in patients who are hospitalized in the ICU with COVID. So awesome. a lot of these things, again, great that they're investigating these, these um, functional medicine tools that we have that we can see in the literature that make clinical, it makes um, hypothetical sense. So now we need to see, does that translate into then clinical improvements because, you know, let's face it. I mean, these, you know, million dollar drugs that are being, you know, investigated, we have at our tools, I mean, melatonin and SPM and SBI that are not nearly the cost and, you know, much more easily accessible. So I really do hope that, that there are more findings and more good studies on some of these functional medicine approaches. 
Did you know that 80% of our immune system resides in the gut? It's true, which means mucosal immunity is one of the most important factors in determining overall immune health. The mucosal barrier is at the center of interactions between the immune system and the outside world. An overabundance of microbes or toxins can and often do overload and trigger negative immune reactions, which have sweeping effects throughout the body. Fortunately, we can protect ourselves with something called SBIgG. SBIgG is the only purified, dairy-free source of immunoglobulin G, IgG, available as a dietary supplement. Pure IgG helps to maintain a healthy intestinal immune system by binding a broad range of microbes and toxins within the gut lumen. Simply put, when the toxins are bound to SBIgG, they cannot interact with our immune system and we're better protected from illness and disease. Free from dairy, saturated fats, cholesterol, sugars, GMOs, hormones, and antibiotics, SBIgG is a safe choice for all patient types. With over 40 human clinical trials for a broad range of patient types, SBIgG is my go-to choice to help support the immune cells in our GI tract. This comes in a powder or capsule version. Use code IgG for 10% off at yourlongevityblueprint.com. So we talked about food as medicine and the role supplements play. Let's talk a little bit about the state of mental health emergency in our nation. So what role does emotional and psychological health play in immune resilience? You've already talked a little bit about this, but let's go there for a minute and then kind of talk about how we can help our kids optimize their vagus nerve function. Yes. And, you know, many people I'm sure in your audience have heard of vagus nerve, you know, supports and the parasympathetic versus the sympathetic nervous systems. When we take a step back and we look at stress, right? What is stress? Again, nothing's good or bad hundred percent. When we say stress, immediately people think, oh, I don't want stress. I don't want my kids to be stressed. Let's get rid of stress. Well, that's not a good thing either, right? Stress causes us to adapt from a mental, physical, and an immunologic level, right? When we learn from our stress, we learn from our stress when we we overcome it. So, you know, there's this idea of tolerable stress or toxic stress. And, you know, when we have stress that that we manage um, and we're in this state where we have stressors and then we manage and we learn how to do it better the next time, that's called you stress, E-U, you stress, right? You stress is that state of, you know, living in a world where we can balance balance stress and and harmony, right? But when stress becomes distress, Mm -hmm. then that becomes more inflammatory, right? And as I mentioned before, psychological stress causes the very same cascade of inflammatory responses in our immune system as physical stress or immunologic stress, right? The very same it's no different. So when we have this onslaught of, you know, psychological stress after stress after stress that we're not handling, we can present with the very same, you know, inflammatory symptoms. And we are currently, the American Academy of Pediatrics has announced, and we know this, the pandemic has triggered a state of mental health emergency. It's not new. It is not new. When we talk about this, and I've talked about this for years, I mean, before COVID, when you know every winter we come along and everyone starts to panic over influenza. And when you look at it, teenagers, our teens and our youth are 17 times more likely to die by suicide than they are of influenza, right? I mean, even now, the CDC came out with the analysis that COVID now is, I think they said the eighth was in 2020, the eighth biggest killer of children. Well, suicide of five to 11 year olds, suicide's still higher, 
right? Wow. I mean, you know, where we need to think about what our mental health priorities are, our public health priorities are, because what's here is not separate. You can't disconnect the head from the rest of your body. And we know how important that gut brain, immune brain um, connection is. So when we think about this, you know, what I point people to is the landmark work, the life-changing work of Robert Navio um, down at UCSD, who's really identified something called the cell danger response. And the cell danger Danger response. I love to talk about the cell danger response. And I just had the honor of meeting Dr. Robert Navio for the first time this weekend when I was lecturing, you know, with him. I just what an wow. honor to have your mentor yeah. there. <laughs> Come right, go right after him. His work is is life-changing. And he describes the cell danger response as our cells normally live in, in a health cycle, right? Where we have our normal waking metabolic processes to happen while we're awake, and then our restorative healing process when we're asleep. That's our, our health cycle. Now, when a hit comes to this health cycle and boom, we get this hit, whether it's psychological stress and environmental toxin or an infection or physical trauma, our cells get thrown into the cell danger response that then is called the healing cycle that we have to go through step-by-step phase one, phase two, phase three of the cell danger response to get back into then the health cycle. In the very simplistically, in the first phase of the cell danger response, that injured cell walls itself off from the rest of our body because it needs to protect us, right? We don't want this inflammation to go crazy. And it triggers ATP release into our our extracellular space and recruits all these other cells, you know, to help heal. And we try to neutralize the threat, whatever it is, right? The infection or, you know, uh, environmental toxin or psychological trauma. If the threat is contained, then our cells can move into the next phase two of the cell danger response. If that insult is not contained, let's take an infection, it gets walled off, right? It gets hidden away, kind of wrapped around by, let's say, clots, you know, fibrin, so that our immune system can kind of defend itself with this wall. That's what happens, right, with chronic infections, right? But then we move into the cell danger response too, where it's the repair cycle. Stem cells get generated so that there's, you know, any old cells that didn't survive get replaced, Cells that can be repaired, get repaired. And that's where all of our functional medicine interventions are really important to support mitochondrial function, metabolic function, um, you know, immunologic function, methylation, detoxification. When that happens correctly, our cells can move into the third phase, cell danger response phase three. This third phase is where many, many, many people, kids and adults are stuck in, right? Their cells are stuck in this third phase because they can't move back into the healing cycle. What happens in this third phase? Our mitochondria get restored and the cells that were separated, all these new cells that were were created in phase two and the initial cells that were walled off, separated from the rest of our body have to reconnect to the rest of our body through the vagus nerve. That happens through the vagus nerve. And when you're stuck in this phase three, that could really be what's happening for our long COVID patients. They're stuck here. You know, for our patients with autism, for PTSD, for autoimmune illness, illnesses, and they can't recover. Very often they're stuck in this phase. And I see this too, right? For our, my kids where you know, if they have autoimmune illness and we do our functional medicine work and we can get them into remission, but what happens, right? Maybe we can get them into remission briefly, but 
another stressor comes along and they go right back, right? They're not staying there. But if we can incorporate these vagus nerve supports, which kind of get put into the side category, mind, body, medicine, but it really is the foundation of everything that we're doing. They can stay in the health cycle. That's why patients who have chronic Lyme, many of my colleagues are really moving towards supporting them now with vagal retraining, you know, through integrated listening systems or through amygdala retraining with DNRS or the Gupta program, right? There's different programs because we have to retrain the way our brain and our vagus nerve are operating, you know, get out of that, that sick mode into the healthy mode. So it's so important, but what, what can we do? I mean, even before we get into that phase, we want our kids to have and ourselves as parents to have all the tools to have the strongest vagus nerve possible what can we do, right? We can learn how to do those breathing techniques before we're sick, before we need to do them. There's no way Bodhi would have effectively used that square breathing if we hadn't already been doing it with that app before he got sick, right? We use those breathing techniques at our house when our kids kind of get, or when I, I mean, I do that too, right? We use our breath work, you know, mindfulness, meditation, EFT tapping has been shown to improve vagus nerve function, Heart math is another program that's been shown to improve vagus nerve function. And how do we measure vagus nerve function? We measure by looking for optimal or good heart rate variability. And, you know, when I listen to a kid's heart and their lungs, what I'm listening at is not just that lungs are clear and they have no murmurs. I'm listening as a proxy. What is a heart rate variability? And you can do this. I'll have parents and kids do this. You know, just find your pulse on your neck or find it on your wrist and take a big breath in and then take a slow breath out. And as you do that, when you take a slow breath in, your heart rate should speed up. And as you exhale, heart rate should slow down. So that's what heart rate variability is, right? We want that respiratory sinus arrhythmia. When we breathe in, our heart rate should speed up. When we exhale, heart rate should slow down. If you're boom, 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 up all the time, that means you're in that sympathetic fight or flight mode a little bit more. Let's train our nervous system to get back into that slow, steady, parasympathetic rest, digest, and heal state. And there are clinically, we know from studies, Meditation can do this. Yoga can do this. Heart math can do this. Diaphragmatic breathing, that belly breathing, EFT tapping. Also something called loving kindness meditation, right? Which I love and is so easy to do. When you practice loving kindness meditation, either yourself or you know, have your kids do it, there's only four sentences that you say. May you feel safe. May you feel happy. May you feel healthy. May you live with ease. That's it. And there's six week meditation, loving kindness meditation studies that have been done in adults and with college students that have been found an improvement in the heart rate variability, improvement in your sense of connectedness and your joy, well-being. And when we do this, you know, we always start with ourselves. We always start with giving loving kindness to ourselves and gratitude to ourselves. That's so important because some of the harshest words that we hear are from our own voice right? To ourselves. And so first we have to really, really make sure that we stop, we sit, we close our eyes, we give ourselves love and gratitude, and we just tell ourselves, may I feel safe. May I feel happy. May I feel healthy. May I live with ease. And then we can sit and think, 
just one by one, think about family or friends that you want to extend that loving kindness to, your neighbors, your community, the world, whomever you want to. In the beginning, I was really sending this out to all those frontline workers and then extend that loving kindness to them. You know, may you feel happy. May you feel safe. May you feel healthy. May you live with ease. And you know what? Guess what? You know, loving kindness meditation has also been found to increase telomere length in white blood cells. Right. Right. And so I mean, all of this, that's where in functional medicine, we've come a step closer in really um, educating on the importance of mind-body medicine, but we're still not close enough yet because it's still not something that many of us know the practical tools to teach our kids and our parents and our adult patients. It's not enough to say, take a yoga class or here, download this meditation app. Because when you give your patients a list of supplements And then some diet recommendations, lifestyle recommendations, meditation recommendations, they might do the supplements, but all those lifestyle and diet things tend to go down to the bottom. We need to elevate that. We need to make sure as practitioners that we prioritize the diet and the lifestyle piece as Mm -hmm. even more important than the supplement piece, right? So true. So good. Mic drop. We could just end the podcast right there. <laughs> but I, I want to go back to fever because I think it's so important as we wrap up the show. Um, you alluded to fever not being a bad thing earlier. So what's one of the biggest mistakes that parents make when their kids are sick, like having a fever? And what can they do instead? Yeah. So number one mistake, not just parents, but practitioners too, right? Nurses, doctors, parents, grandparents, the number one mistake is having fever phobia. Number one, what happens when kids have a fever and you go to the ER to urgent care before anyone lays eyes on that kid, that kid gets a dose of Tylenol, right? Immediately without looking at this child. The first thing that happens for a lot of parents when their kids have a fever or grandparents, oh my gosh, get the Motrin, bring the fever down. You know, fever is dangerous. So the first thing we need to do is change that mindset. Right. And understand, like we were talking about before, that there's nothing that's ever good or bad, 100%. I mean, there are some things. I can think of a few things, right? But very few things are 100% good or bad. And fever is one of them. Fever is your body's natural response to fighting infection, fighting physiologic trauma, even psychological trauma. I mean, have you ever had kids or yourself where you've been so stressed and anxious and all of a sudden you get a fever, right? Same thing, right? We want to understand that it is our body's natural response. And there are studies showing that if you reduce fever artificially with antipyretic, anti-fever medicines like Tylenol or ibuprofen, that it can actually prolong the duration of the illness, prolong shedding from your nose of the virus. So you're more infectious for longer and it doesn't help your kids get better faster, right? Uh, and so- Did you hear that, parents? You might have to say that again. (laughs) (laughs) Lowering the fever artificially does not help your kids get better faster. Um, In fact, it can keep them sicker longer. Now, just like everything, there is a time and a place for everything. Do I give fever reducers? Sure. When kids are so uncomfortable that they're not wanting to drink or they can't fall asleep because sleep and hydration are a must when you're sick, okay? But there are many, many ways to help your child's fever naturally without suppressing it. Because what happens 
right? You suppress the fever of Tylenol or Motrin, comes right back after four hours when it wears off. It doesn't do anything to support your body's immune response. So what do we want to do? We want to support your child's immune response so that their fever can come down naturally using natural immune mechanisms and shorten the duration of their illness, right? Without suppressing. So, I mean, number one thing is hydration, right? We, I mean, just being dehydrated mm-hmm. in the summertime, if you run a marathon, you get a fever, right? So stay hydrated, electrolytes are best, like coconut water, or if you're making herbal teas, throw in a little pinch of sea salt, a little pinch of sugar or honey. And then, you know, I use this, I teach parents how to use essential oils, acupressure points, different herbs or supplements, homeopathic medicines for all sorts of acute conditions. For essential oils, lavender is very safe, even for young kids. Uh, you can dilute, but it is one of the ones that can be used with called NEAT, you know, without even diluting and use them on acupressure points. So one of the acupressure points that's really good for fever and supporting immune responses here, large intestine four, it's in the web space between your thumb and index finger, put a drop of uh, lavender on your finger and just hold firm, gentle pressure, or you can massage. Um, so that's a really easy thing to do. Then as far as homeopathic medicines go, you know, homeopathic medicines, they're coming in these little blue tubes. They're one of the forms of medicine that there, there are some good studies on, but it's a one that I think many people are the least familiar with. And it's hard to wrap your mind around using these substances that are so dilute. You know, isn't it just a sugar pill? Isn't it just placebo? But there are some, especially for kids uh, and even in animals, there are some good studies <laughs> showing their effectiveness. One, one homeopathic medicine that is good to have on hand is called ferrum phosphoricum. You give three little pellets, kids love them every few hours. And that's just for general kind of non-specific low-grade fevers. There are other ones as well. Um, of course, you're going to give your vitamin D. You know, there are different herbs that you can use. One of my favorites is, is a Chinese herbal formula called Windbreaker. The reason why it's called Windbreaker is, because, I mean, kids always kind of giggle like the wind, right? <laughs> you're passing wind. It's not that. But it, it's because in Chinese medicine, when kids have a fever, it's considered to be an attack of the wind. The wind has attacked you. Now you have a fever. And so it helps to break that wind and, and break the fever, which it really, really is very helpful. So it's just, those are just some ideas. Uh, you know, I've lost more tips that, for parents, but the first thing, just when your kids have a fever, take a breath. It's okay. It's not dangerous to them in a neurologically intact kid, right? Who doesn't have, you know, any, any kind of neurologic problem. And I'm not talking about autism. I'm talking really about a uh, neurologic, a severe neurologic disease, unless you're overbundled, wrapped so much that you can't have heat escape, your, your temperature cannot get too high. Good to know. We needed to hear that. You're a wealth of knowledge. I'm sure you've heard that before. So tell us where where listeners can connect with you and, and learn more of your tips. So the best place to find me is on my online educational site, my blog. It's called Healthy Kids, Happy Kids, and that's www.healthykidshappykids.com. That's where I write articles. And then if you sign up for my newsletter, I don't write too many newsletters, but they're always information packed. And then, you know, my Instagram and Facebook pages, if you just search Healthy Kids, Happy Kids, you'll find me. That's where I post up-to-date information, my interpretation of different research papers that come out, um, inspirational tips for moms. So that those are the best places to find me. Awesome. And I hear you have a free ebook gift for our audience as well. I do. I mean, talking about fever, uh, it's an ebook called the top five mistakes parents make when their child has a fever and what you can do instead. So I'll give you that link. And then I'd also mentioned the food is medicine guide. I'll make sure that you have that link too. Awesome. I'll post those in the show notes. All right. Last question. What's your top longevity tip? 
my top longevity tip, well, I think uh, you might be able to guess, it's to really center your mind, right? Practice your mind-body medicine, engage that vagus nerve. Not only, as I mentioned before, can it increase telomere length, but it can cause epigenetic changes in methylation and different genes that all promote health and well-being. So it's not just for relaxation, stress relief. It really is for health and longevity. I love it. Love it. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today and hopefully reducing parents' fears over illness by helping empower us with information on nutrition and supplements and ultimately teaching us how to improve our child and our family's immune resilience. So you are such a gem to this nation's, uh, I'll say parents and, and the children of this nation. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks, Stephanie. It's an honor to be here. I hope you so enjoyed this interview. It's so clear that helping children has been her heart. But she's not just helping kids, she's helping whole families learn how to create immune resilience. Please share the show. And lastly, I'll leave you with this. May you feel safe. May you feel happy. May you feel healthy. And may you live with ease. Be sure to check out my book, Your Longevity Blueprint. And if you aren't much of a reader, you're in luck. You can now take my course online where I walk you through each chapter in the book. Plus, for a limited time, the course is 50% off. Check this offer out at yourlongevityblueprint.com and click the course tab. One of the biggest things you can do to support the show and help us reach more listeners is to subscribe to the show. Leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I do read all the reviews and would truly love to hear your suggestions for show topics, guests, and for how you're applying what you've learned on the show to create your own longevity blueprint. The podcast is produced by the team at Counterweight Creative. As always, thank you so much for listening and remember, wellness is waiting. The information provided in this podcast is educational. No information